0: Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at cit.com. Put knowledge to work. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway, executive editor of Bloomberg Markets. And uh, unfortunately, my normal co-host, Joe Weisenthal, is away this week. He is off uh, globetrotting to some very exotic locations on a business trip for Bloomberg. So I thought as a sort of um, protest episode that Joe gets to go on an amazing trip to some very nice places with very good food and very luxurious scenery, we are going to talk about globalization. And specifically, we are going to talk about the negative aspects of globalization. And here with me today as a uh, replacement co-host is Sid Verma. He is one of the newest members of the Bloomberg Markets team. Say hello, Sid. Hi there. So, Sid, you're actually the perfect person to talk about this because you've done an enormous amount of work on globalization and cross-border capital flows and development over the course of your career, right?
1: Yes, um, for the last couple of years, I've written quite a lot about um, the opportunities and challenges brought by unfettered capital flows and the backlash against um, some trade policies that have been um, implemented at the behest of Western-backed institutions. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited to have this conversation. It seems like it really is the sexy topic of the moment. Um, we've obviously yeah. got Brexit vote. The rise of Donald Trump this year, declining trade flows, rising income inequality, political populism. It all seems to nurture a growing view that globalization isn't just out of fashion, it's on life support.
0: And our guest today, I actually really like the way you described him earlier. Um, It's Danny Roderick. He's an economist. He's also a professor of international political economy at Harvard. And uh, you kind of said he was the original guy who um, started writing about all the negative aspects of globalization before it was cool, right?
1: Yeah, um, he Uh, refused to join in the congratulatory party two decades ago um, and he argued that economists probably overstated the benefits of globalization and that policymakers probably risk a a backlash if they push ahead with unfettered free trade and capital policies. So he's exactly the right economist to talk to on this topic.
0: Right, and in retrospect it seems like the notion that a backlash was coming was very, very prescient because here we are in 2016, and everyone's talking about the downsides of uh, globalization, unfettered trade deals, rightly or wrongly, I should say. Well, without further ado, uh, Danny Roderick, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Uh, Nice to be with you. Thank you.
0: Should we maybe start with this idea of a backlash uh, you know to what extent was the criticism that we are seeing now of globalization to what extent was that inevitable based on what's happened over the past two decades and beyond
2: i I, I think it was pretty inevitable i mean it, it seemed uh, clear to me that uh, the the opposition was going to be building up. I guess uh, I, I wrote a little monograph um, a, a couple of decades ago called Has Globalization Gone Too Far? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it was different kinds of characters that were sort of, uh, it was Pat Buchanan and, uh, you know, in Europe it was the uh, the truckers protesting and the agriculturalists and, and sort of were, you know, sort of other kinds of uh, people on the scene. Uh, but, um the general trends were 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 pretty easy to see and 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 they arose from some basic fundamentals that uh, the, the the kind of overall economic benefits of of globalization you sort of began to be swamped by a lot of concerns about redistribution about what was happening to specific communities about uh, the the elites uh, getting sort of uh, um, uh, uprooted from uh, sort of their national setting and then the larger gap opening up between the uh, the people who control the politics and what was happening and and the ordinary people um, and uh, sort of you know decision making moving moving away from national capitals to uh, uh to weird places like Brussels or geneva or or sort of multinationals and banks uh, in, in, you know, in closed doors. And, and so historically, of course, this was also not the first time we were seeing this, uh, that we've had an era of, of high globalization uh, during the gold standard, and and, uh, and it, came, it came to a rather abrupt end uh, for many of the same reasons. Um, uh, I don't think we are up uh, quite uh, the same kind of crisis uh, uh, at, at this point, I think the uh, the global, kind of globalization we have has uh, much firmer foundations than uh, than uh, was the case under the gold uh, gold standard. Uh, but I, I do think we have pushed it uh, further than uh, it can go either economically, uh, actually, or politically.
0: I like the idea that we're not necessarily facing a huge crisis when it comes to a, a globalization backlash. What exact? Can you spell out what exactly makes it different this time compared to, for instance, the end of the gold standard?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think we're in a much better, you know, despite all the, the backlash, the fact is that uh, we have much stronger institutions um, uh, today compared to uh, the 1920s and 1930s, the interwar period um, when the gold standard uh, eventually collapsed. Um, we have uh, much stronger uh, governments that are providing uh, much better safety nets. Uh, we have um, global institutions that uh, provide for much greater uh, global uh, cooperation. The, the World Trade Organization and the IMF, who had nothing like that uh, in the interwar period, and by and large, I think you know that uh, people have incorporated the lessons of the um, the rampant protectionism of the 1930s and and i think even the you know the populists uh, the way they talk about uh, trade policy it's it's uh, historically speaking it's, it's a rather measured kind of protectionism hmm. uh, i don't think uh, smooth and holy would be uh, something that that even donald trump would uh, <laughs> would bring up as something that that he would like to uh, to to reenact uh, so i think the intellectual uh, consensus has actually shifted quite a bit and uh, even though they're uh, a bit more down in dumps than usual, I mean, I think the, the political forces that uh, push for uh, open markets, uh, you know, big multinationals or or banks or uh, the trade elite, uh, they also happen to be much more. They're still politically quite uh, quite powerful. So I don't see a fundamental breaking down of the system in the way that that we saw. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I you know that you know we could you know seriously mismanage the situation and in fact fuel uh, the rise of uh, and the growth of of uh, populism that uh, I think, you know, the, the damage will be not just to globalization. I think the damage will be to our uh, liberal democratic order. And I think that's uh, that's, in fact, a, a much bigger price to pay.
0: So, Danny, you mentioned the idea that globalization may in some way have been mismanaged. Can you spell out exactly what you mean by that and give us maybe some examples?
2: I think I, I I timed the transition to uh, the 1990s where I think we began to mush, push for a model of, of globalization that I call hyper-globalization, mm. uh, which is uh, where gradually globalization turned into an end uh, for itself uh, rather than being a, a means to an end. And, and we saw increasingly... Um, governments negotiating deals or, or undertaking uh, changes in policies that, that, that began to constrain um, uh, what they could do domestically, began to constrain the way that they could address uh, domestic um, uh, concerns, and, uh, and uh, oversold uh, the benefits of the resulting arrangements. And didn't pay a whole lot of attention uh, to the disruption that those things would cause. And I think if there were sort of two concrete things, uh, one was the creation of the World Trade Organization in the 90s, which which uh, went significantly beyond any trade agreement that had been negotiated. And what's really stands out about the WTO uh, is that uh, it reached significantly beyond borders into. Uh, deep domestic territory in economic policy making with broad uh, set of restrictions on on what governments could do in the way of dealing with subsidies in in the area of of health and safety standards with respect to intellectual property rights and on the financial side of course even though this was not an international agreement uh, by and large uh, complete mobility of of capital uh, particularly of short-term financial capital became Effectively, the norm uh, through uh, the workings of the European Union and on, and on a broader scale through the OECD, um, and I think this uh, this new um, set of understandings from the 1990s, on the one hand, uh, you know, complete mobility of capital as a norm. Uh, and, uh, and, and trade agreements, uh, you know, being no longer about uh, tariffs and quotas at the border, but increasingly about domestic regulations and how those had to be coordinated and harmonized across countries. I think, sort of, both uh, made domestic economic policy making much more uh, hostage, left it much more hostage to uh, this sort of, you know, these anonymous forces of globalization, uh, and, and, and created this this juncture between sort of you know where uh, you know the life that the ordinary people were living and uh, their their own economic ex- existence, uh, and the kind of policymaking that happened uh, at that sort of international uh, sort of globalisation or hyperglobalization driven sphere.
0: We are going to take a quick break for our sponsors. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at cit.com. Put knowledge to work. We're back. Danny, I'm interested in this idea of globalization, hyper globalization, if you will, uh, going too far. And I always wonder how did that actually happen? Like, did politicians just wake up one day and realize that there was a lot of opportunity for them personally in creating these sort of supranational structures that they could then um, have careers in? Or did, walk us through this, how this actually happened.
2: Um, you know, it, it's a combination, as usual, of, of interests and ideas. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, of course, you had very specific interests uh, at work. Um, and so in, in, in financial globalization, of course, there were you know, banks that became bigger and were interested in, in, in re- removing impediments to, to capital flows and, and uh, across borders. Uh, you had multinationals who wanted to get market access and therefore were interested in, in in reshaping the regulations of different countries so as to remove impediments in terms of their being able to access these markets. So You had, you had definitely interests at play. Uh, but there was also, you know, ideas. I mean, sort of the whole, you know, ideational context of uh, how these things happened in the 1990s um, had as its background, uh, of course, sort of the, the notion that uh, you know, markets couldn't do much wrong. That uh, that governments, uh, when they intervened, uh, would only sort of muck things around, mm-hmm. and that you know, sort of that that trade liberalisation in the 50s and 60s and 70s had been. Um, you know, had been, had produced a booming world economy and therefore, which by the way was is true, uh, but then sort of the misleading uh, conclusion was there that therefore this was the most important thing to keep doing. So effectively a good thing was taken too far in my view. And third, uh, I, I would add that uh, uh, on top of, of, you know, sort of the general mediational context and the interests of various actors. Um, I think there was a political failure on the part, uh, particularly, I would say, of the uh, sort of, you know, what uh, in the United States context we would call sort of liberals or left liberals, and in, the, in, in Europe would be the socialists and the social democrats, uh, a sort of, a, a certain abdication of their responsibility. And, and they, uh, they bought into that whole story of um, uh, how sort of, you know, moving on this hyper globalization agenda. Either was something that was necessary, that they couldn't do much about it, or as was the case in many cases, uh, that this is something that they should actually back, that they should support. Mm-hmm. Uh, so somewhat surprisingly, some of the the most avid supporters of financial globalization were the socialists uh, in France or the uh, the Clinton Democrats in the United States uh so i think you know sort of the, the political group that uh you might have thought uh would have acted as a break, in fact uh it was very much in uh behind this this push towards hyperglobalization so i think that that's i think is sort of the combination um of uh of the forces that brought us to um to to where we are
1: so, so where do we go um, going forward? Um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Transatlantic Trade Partnership deals look like they do 't have sufficient uh, political backing, uh, the IMF has issued you know, a mere culpa saying that they have probably overstated the virtues of ne- neoliberalism, which you know tends to argue for the wholesale privatization of companies as well as a, a modest role for fiscal policy and fully open trade and financial borders at the same time you know, governments and the IMF are, are more sympathetic to the view that Capital controls can shield themselves from volatility of international finance, um, so you know what, what, where are we going next? Um, are there sufficient number of, you know, um, you know, is there a moral leadership on the international stage to try and craft a, a new uh, trading model? Um, or, or is it just a model through scenario?
2: Yes. So, so as I said earlier, I, you know, I, I don't think the really bad scenario uh, is one of a very high likelihood where we have a complete collapse um, of um, uh, the world economy and, and, and globalization with all the, uh, the really terrible political uh, ramifications of the type that we saw uh, in the interwar period. But, but leaving that aside, I, I, I think whether we take a, a relatively good path or a relatively ugly path um, depends largely on how the um, mainstream political groups uh, React um, and and that's both sort of you know center right center left parties uh, and um, also the, the the technocratic establishment. Now I think both of these groups have have are sort of halfway down the line. I mean as you say. There has been a sort of mea culpa of sorts on a number of different dimensions. Uh, you know, that you know, the the free mobility of capital. I think sort of the consensus around that has dissipated, and even the IMF is saying, you know, that that we need to uh, you know accept that there are circumstances on which capital controls might make sense. Uh, And there's sort of, you know, wider agreement that, you know, maybe we needed kind of a different models on on trade negotiations. Uh, But we're not quite there yet. And we see it, for example, in the way that, you know, an institution like the IMF responds. To where we are. On the one hand, you have these sort of, um, revisions, uh, in, in its thinking. On the other hand, you have Christine Lagarde coming out and saying that, you know, we need to stay strong on trade. And then the only way that we can, uh, progress is by signing more trade agreements. And, and it's, it's very important that we do that. Uh, so I think, you know, the, the realization hasn't sunk in that the way that you respond to these things is, 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 is not by, you know, simply doing a better marketing job on the benefits of trade. That's not the issue. Uh, the issue is, is that ordinary people feel uh, that um, policymaking and, 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 the, and the technocratic and policy elites are pursuing a set of interests which is not theirs. And, and, uh, and, and, and the, the main constraint that the world economy faces right now is not that it is not sufficiently open, and so you need to sign new trade agreements. The main constraint is that it's lacking the legitimacy in the eyes of the ordinary people that you need to sustain a a moderately open economy. And once you realize that the main constraint is legitimacy, not lack of openness, then you have to really start thinking that that what we should be doing is not pushing for more trade agreements, but really fundamentally revisiting uh, what we are negotiating when we talk about trade. And we're not there yet.
0: But Danny, this is where I get confused, because when people talk about reforming trade or better distributing um, the benefits of free trade, it seems like by doing that, by definition, you almost go into protectionism, right? Because, you know, improving trade for for one group is inevitably going to be good from their perspective and perhaps bad for someone else. So how do you make it better without automatically going backwards and entering a sort of protectionist everyone for themselves game? Yeah,
2: I think one of the obstacles uh, in, in thinking creatively and productively about uh, the, the, the world of trade is that we have this, you know, we we think about sort of trade and what we're doing in trade as if sort of moving in this unidirectional uh, sort of road that goes from, you know, more open trade to less open trade. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, the, the battle between protectionism and free trade. You know, this may have been the battle that we were fighting in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and that battle has been won, uh, and it's been won by, uh, by, by free traders. But really, since the 1990s and since the World Trade Organization, trade negotiations and trade agreements are not about free trade. Uh, and, and so, you know, so what we're really talking about is not protectionism versus uh, free trade, a large part of the TPP is really about talking about regulations Mm. um, and and, and regulations that are fundamental to running an open economy uh, and a market-based system. The question is, you know, where should those regulations be designed and what's the role of international agreements or global market forces in shaping those regulations? Uh, So, should corporations, for example, have access to a completely separate track in the way that they can uh, pursue their interests uh, and impose um, their own preferences on, on certain on governments when no other group, uh, NGOs, or labor unions, or, or others, have a similar ability. So of course, I'm talking about the ISDS, the so-called Investor-State Dispute Dispute Settlement uh, System, which is part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and other trade agreements. Are we talking about, now we're talking about, you know, rules with respect to Capital flows and capital account regulations, and uh, patent and intellectual property rights, and and you know what are appropriate rules in those areas for a country like Vietnam or for a country like Malaysia, and should those be designed by international agreement, and should the main actors who will be you know shaping those regulations be f- f- banks and 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 large multinational corporations? These are not issues that are helpfully discussed in, in in light of a, you know, sort of protectionism versus free trade uh, kind of a mindset, because they're not about those. Um, and so that's why I don't think the issue is really that of, 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 you know, if we, if we don't negotiate TPP or TTIP, that we're necessarily falling into um, a, a protectionist uh, hellhole. Uh, the issue is, can we have better rules uh, that address issues of fairness, of distributive justice, of, of uh, equity, mm-hmm. um, in a sense that people want to make sure that the rules and regulations that affect their lives are made democratically uh, in fora that they can actually openly participate in? Uh, are we allowing for democratic deliberation, sufficient democratic deliberation for the, um, the determination of such rules? So those are uh, the kinds of, of, of issues, and I think uh, they certainly uh, are the ones that ought to be
1: discussed. I think that brings us quite neatly onto kind of two separate topics, whether it's trade globalization or financial globalization. But one way of looking at slowing globalization is the fact that trade growth has been weaker than GDP growth in recent years, um, and that trade elasticity, so-called trade elasticity, is uh, projected to be weak again this year. Um, and I know that you say that that's a very blunt way of looking at, you know, globalization but it seems that trade volumes are weak, and there seems to be an existential threat for emerging markets in the, in the coming decades, um, given the fact that there are new manufacturing techniques that could you know, increase um, import substitution in developed markets. You know, to what extent are you concerned that emerging markets lack the comparative advantage um, from new innovative technologies such as driverless cars, 3D pr- printing, and new software? because traditionally we know that for emerging markets to grow, uh, they need to build out uh, competitive manufacturing hubs.
2: Yes. I mean, first, I think the the, the decline of, of trade volumes in relation to global uh, output um, in recent years, that uh, I, I don't think has much to do with the uh, populist uh, backlash so far. Um, so I don't think that's really driven through uh, by the rise of protectionism there are much you know sort of there you know supply chains are being uh sort of brought in uh home because of technological changes um and and the slowing down of 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 china and and uh, is is also a very big factor in that so there are you know what's happening to to trade recently i think is largely driven by uh by economic and technological changes and not by the politics around trade Although uh, I do think that if we mismanage um, globalization, political risks and, and, uh, and political barriers will start to play a role as well. But going back to uh, the question of, of developing countries and emerging markets, I'm indeed uh, very concerned um, by the fact that um, manufacturing in, uh, has, is increasingly becomes, becoming skill and technology intensive and effectively... Comparative advantage in manufacturing is moving away from many low-income countries uh, and and the traditional route whereby uh, Countries developed very rapidly was one of export-oriented industrialization. That's of course what China did before China It's what uh, South Korea and Taiwan did before them. It was Japan and what we see around the world these days is is that uh, That really uh, a a process of what I've called premature deindustrialization in low to middle-income countries that they're uh, that they are becoming deindustrialized at very low levels of development and manufacturing isn't serving the kind of escalator role that it did. So you know, you know, a country like Ethiopia that really should is in some sense ideally uh, ideally placed uh, to be the next sort of low-cost uh, uh, source for manufactured exports um, you know, has received uh, some Chinese investment, but I really don't see it developing in quite the same way that the East Asian countries did before. And I think technology has a lot to do with it. Um, you know, when we start talking about you know, 3D printing of shoes, uh, you've suddenly you know, taken away you know, one of the main uh, mechanisms through which low-income uh, countries developed. Uh, and you've taken that 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 escalator away from them. You know, so it is it is an issue that I think um, uh, will mark uh, developing countries in the decades ahead.
1: And and of course, going forward, um, financial globalization um, is a big question mark. Um, you know, obviously we have a dollar-driven global financial order, but nothing. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. um, And you have been warning for years about the risks of boom bust uh, capital flow cycles. Um, Are you concerned that maybe emerging markets are a bit too cautious to impose capital controls or moderate the pace of credit growth? Because there's a perception that, you know, open financial markets can boost growth when, you know, that, that contention isn't necessarily uh, supported wholesale um, in economic theory.
2: I I, I am, you're right that that there is, you know, on the one hand there's been an ideological shift uh, as we talked earlier that that uh, even the IMF is not in favor of complete uh, freedom of capital mobility understands that uh, that developing countries um, may want to use capital controls on the other hand, uh, in terms of practice, there is still a certain amount of stigma, a certain amount of, of risks uh, to policymakers um, from, from using capital controls. And I think what... and, and, and Could you give us any IMF examples at all? I'm sorry?
1: Could you give us any examples at all?
2: Well, I mean, most, uh, you know, sub-Saharan African countries still maintain uh, large, uh, maintain fairly open capital accounts. And, and, you know, what what they want to be is they want to be, you know, seen as, as, you know, particularly promising uh, frontier market economies. So, you know, s- you know we have now this, this, this new notion that we're marketing, as frontier market economies, and then that's sort of as, you know, as recipients of capital inflows. And, uh, and it doesn't seem like the right thing to do if you want to be perceived as a frontier uh, economy to, to actively manage capital flows. So you, these countries are getting very mixed messages. From official institutions and financial markets, and one thing that you know the IMF could be doing that it's not doing is actually uh, provide you know active uh, technical assistance uh, to how capital accounts ought to be managed. Um, so it's one thing to say that it's you know you should do it maybe as a last resort, but it's okay. Uh, but you know, policymakers in the developing world are, are really concerned that you know they don't know how to do it. They worry that uh, that you know it'll be very easy to to circumvent um, controls. Uh, that there are not m- that many good examples around them. So I think that you know that it it becomes you know the the relatively less risky thing to do for reputational reasons and not to you know want to do anything. Um, and, uh, and I don't think um, international institutions are necessarily helping them all that much.
0: We are going to have to leave it there, although I know we could keep talking about all of this for much, much longer. Danny Roderick, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. So Sid, that was your debut Odd Lots podcast. I feel like we managed to cover um, quite a lot of ground. Uh, Let's see, we talked about hyperglobalization, technocrats, premature deindustrialization. What kind of caught your attention the most? I think I'm a bit
1: concerned about the policy prescriptions to try and address this big problem, because if you balkanise regulatory and legal policy at national borders, you're effectively increasing the cost of doing business, and you therefore increase costs for goods and services, and that just unleashes bad inflation. Um, I'm just not sure this idea that supranational b- bodies have just too much control, um, mm. and therefore we should be responsive to democratic concerns. I mean, I guess I've now realized that I am a uh, authoritarian um, (laughs) and I might be more right-wing than I realized.
0: Yeah. uh, The one thing I, I wish we'd asked is whether or not Professor Roderick is happy with the fact that all of these issues seem to be getting more attention Thanks to the rise of populist parties, uh, people like Donald Trump or the, the Brexit campaign in the UK, or whether he's concerned about the way in which those discussions are actually happening and whether the way the discussions are unfolding ends up being detrimental for everyone. I don't know. Yeah,
1: you know, I haven't seen anyone at a Donald Trump rally hold up a sign arguing for control over pharmaceutical comp you know, <laughs> pharmaceutical <laughs> legislation. Um, right. So yes, um, there is a big disconnect between the populist uh, debates and the, uh, the policy debates. Um, I also think China is the elephant in the room as well, mm. because, you know, everyone argues that China should liberalise its capital currency and trade policies and that can help um, re- you know, rebalance its domestic economy and beef up its productivity. And if it does, it could boost global aggregate demand and give globalization a new lease of life. But it seems that, you know, if you are against um, such liberalization efforts, um, China should continue maybe with its status quo. And it seems like that could be quite a controversial stance to hold.
0: I feel like we are going to be talking about all these issues for quite some time to come. But again, we're going to have to leave it there for today. Uh, I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
1: And I'm Sid Verma. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at underscore Sid Verma.
0: And Danny Roderick is also on Twitter. He is at Roderick Danny. Thanks for listening. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at cit.com. Put knowledge to work.